When I came to Ambassador College back in 1949, September 1949, I'd grown up in the Methodist Church and just a typical uh, young person in the United States. I say typical because I know I was. I had, say, 25 friends, and they were normal. Some were Baptist, Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, uh, community church guys. And later I got to know some Catholic fellows and room with them up in the up in the Anderson Ranch Dam up in uh, Idaho and many different fellows in different places and girls that I would date and so on and so forth. So I knew people pretty well and I was certainly not any better than they were. Uh, but I was, I was normal, let's say, and I knew what normal people were like pretty well because I spent so much time with them. And of course, back then when you had a problem, why uh, there weren't as many ads on the radio or TV as we had take a pill to get up and take a pill to go to bed, but still, if you had a bad headache, you'd take an aspirin. And if you had a bad sinus problem, you'd go to the doctor. If you had some other problem, you'd go to the doctor and go to the doctor and go to the doctor. And uh, my mother used to take me to Dr. Moody all the time, who was her physician. And uh, then I know we had, I used to have this terrible sinus draining in the winter back there. And my nose would get all stopped up because I was eating, you know, uh, chocolate bars and ice cream. I loved those things. And my mother fixed this uh, rich, really, my sister remembered, double rich uh, German chocolate cake. And that was our family dessert, rich chocolate cake with, you know, vanilla ice cream. And I'd eat stuff like that. And then I would get these terrible sinus conditions and headaches and so Daddy would take me to Dr. Post. My mother had to watch over my younger sisters, and he was a eye, ear, nose, throat specialist. And he would stick these great big old things up in your nose. The doctors know about it. Some of you older people remember kind of uh, uh, chemicals they would put on there that would make your nose run. And so that was really kind of painful and really a problem for a young boy, six, eight, ten years old, to go and have Dr. Post stick those things up your nostrils, and then I'd feel better for a while. But my father felt bad for me. He worked right up the street there in the veterinary office and came down about a block and a half. And then he'd pick me up at the end of my appointment. And since he wanted to encourage me, he'd take me right across the street to McCool's drugstore. And they had a soda fountain. And there I would get a great big chocolate sundae. <laughs> wow, right back again. What's going on? <laughs> and, and he didn't know, and Dr. Post didn't know, and nobody seemed to know what to do. The doctors didn't seem to understand anything about medicine, I mean diet, and that kind of thing back in those days. They do more today. But I see our British friends now. I didn't focus on greetings. And uh, his wife, I ought to have talked to them before. I know... God healed her through my prayer years ago, and I remember that and appreciate that. I'm going to be talking on something along that line. But anyway, so I had to uh, get used to going to doctors and having these things. But after coming to Ambassador College, Mr. Herbert Armstrong talked about a real God, a God that I'd never heard about in my Protestant church, a God that intervened in human affairs, a God that intervened and guided the rise and fall of nations a God that guided the United States and gave us the power that we'd had and was beginning to take it away even then in certain ways. And I began to read and hear about God being the healer and that God could intervene and heal our bodies. I'd never heard that before in 19 years of going to Protestant churches, mainly Methodist, but I attended some other churches once in a while. Never heard of it. And it wasn't hoop and holler, Pentecostalism, you know, and they go, glory, 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 and then they fall into the power. It wasn't that kind of healing. He talked about what Jesus did. And what Peter and Paul did and the right kind of healing 
as was described in the Bible. And so after hearing that, I went to him, and I can't remember if I was baptized or not. I think I was, but I'm not sure. I know I just believed, and I had terrible warts all over my hands, and I had tried to kill those warts repeatedly. And I told you about that, so I don't want to dwell on it, but, you know, I'd taken razor braids, and, 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 and I, I knew enough to sterilize them. I'd put them under a, uh, uh, over a match, and then I would dig and just till it bled. My mother was scared. She said, you're going to... You're going to kill yourself or you'll get cancer or something. But I'd cut them out. I'd blow out a matchstick real quick and jam it down there and just endure the pain and thought that would kill it. I did everything. Finally, in desperation, she took me to the doctor. The doctor used the electric needle where they had a needle that went down there and had electric current and supposedly burned it down to the core. Well, it came right back. I had the healthiest warts west of the Mississippi. (laughs) I really did. They would not die. They were the eternal warts. They just stayed that way. They didn't get worse at all. They'd come right back after each one of these things. And this was years before, back in high school, before junior college. So it was at least a year and a half or three years since I'd done anything myself or since the the doctor had done anything. And I came to college and asked Mr. Armstrong to anoint me and ask him to heal. Now, I wish now, as I've said, I'd ask him to heal my eyes, something more serious perhaps, my face, some might say, whatever, (laughs) but ask him to heal my warts. And he didn't heal them right away. Weeks went by, but somehow I had a youthful uh, sort of a sense of knowing, you know. I had a youthful faith, and I just felt God. I just saw this dedicated man and heard his prayer, and I was just sure God was going to heal me. And every morning, my feet would hit the floor from the dormitory and the third floor of Mayfair, and I would look and see if the warts were still there, and they were always there. One morning, I woke up and looked at my hands, and the warts were not there. Well, I've told you this, but I want you to realize what happened. Maybe make it more real to you. And I thought, what happened to my warts? And I pulled the sheets back, and the warts weren't there. And I looked under the bed, and the warts weren't there. They weren't anywhere. God just vaporized the warts. He just took them away supernaturally overnight. It was not gradual, because I really was... Pretty, I'm pretty steady doing things. A lot of you know I'm pretty steady going to the Y and pretty steady doing this. And then I was looking virtually every morning at those warts. And they just went down and went off right over one night. God supernaturally took my warts away because of the prayer of a faithful man. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, God says. And he describes that prayer as healing various ailments as well. And God does heal. And that was my first experience with divine healing. And so I had that, and that was very, very encouraging, of course, to me to see that God did uh, do that. Anyway, what is the truth about divine healing? That's my topic. What is the truth about divine healing? You know, we've had a lot of stress in some ways, too strong in certain ways in the past, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Then some have gone, most have gone to the opposite extreme where they virtually forget God as the healer. And we must not jump in either ditch. We've got to get our balance. So I want to go through that again. And we need to go through that often because as you'll see, it's such a vital part of the gospel. Turn with me back to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Here is David crying out to God under God's inspiration because he put it in the Bible as part of the inspired scripture. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
Bless the Eternal, or the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, means the ever-living one, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, what are God's benefits? What are God's blessings? Who forgives all your iniquities. That's a wonderful thing. God will forgive our sins. And he does do that if we have faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. But there's another part of Christ's sacrifice that the vast majority of people calling themselves Christian don't believe in. And even thousands in God's church don't really believe in because by their fruits you know them. They don't pay any attention to it. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Now, it doesn't say he'll heal everyone's disease every time, but it doesn't make any difference what kind of disease you have. God can heal it. And if you do your part, normally will heal it unless he has some special purpose. Who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So God does give you good things. And one of those good things if you learn to trust in the real God of the Bible, is divine healing. Now, let's turn on to the New Testament, to the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Turn, brethren, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 23. Now, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he preached the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, the coming government of God to be set up on this earth to straighten out all these problems and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Didn't make any difference what kind it was. God could heal it. And God did heal it through Jesus Christ. Another scripture I'd like to give you at this point, I'll just refer to it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Most of you know it. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same Jesus Christ is at God's right hand today. And here at the beginning of His gospel, as part of His gospel ministry, He healed all kinds of disease and all kinds of sickness. And His fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to Him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So it didn't make any difference. The great God who brought Israel out of Egypt, the great God who's going to intervene in a few years from now and shake the nations and literally cause to pass the greatest earthquakes in human history, that God can heal any kind of sickness, any kind of disease. It's not a problem. I think you understand that. You just have to ask yourself, well, how big is my God? if you have something you think is too difficult for God, because there isn't anything too difficult for God in this way. That was part of Jesus' ministry. Now turn to chapter 8, Matthew 8. Get the mind of God. The Bible is the mind of God in print. So in uh, Matthew chapter 8 now at this point, and let's begin reading in uh, verse 1 here. He said... Uh, when he came down from the mountain after giving the Sermon on the Mount, great multitudes came, a leper came, saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus Christ is the same, always. So what did he say? I am willing. So he was willing. Be cleansed. And he cleansed this leper. 
What a horrible disease that was. If you can understand it first with gaping sores and running and pussy, horrible things, and suddenly he's healed. Just a sense of exhilaration would come over him, a magnificent thing. And God healed that man. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Go to the priest. And then a centurion came pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I'm a man under authority. I can say to this soldier, you know, about face. And he about faces. Go and he goes or come and he comes. He understood authority. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said, Surely I say to you, I have not found such great faith, in, not even in Israel. This man said, I know what authority is, and I see you are God, you are the Messiah. He was letting him know, in effect, he knew he was that kind of power. You have authority, and I believe in that authority. He showed tremendous faith, this Italian centurion. And a lot of the Jews got all in details. Well, yeah, but what about this and what about that? And they didn't have that kind of faith that they ought to have had. But Jesus talked about that faith. And that's an important part of it, a tremendous part of it. We've got to have a knowledge of healing. But then we've got to develop through God's help, through constantly reading the Bible and prayer and walking with God, becoming familiar with God, fellowshipping with God, real faith. That we are God's servants, we are God's children, and He is there, He's with us. We have our hand in His hand, and we believe, and we know, and we know that we know. When we begin to have more of that faith, we will have more healings, my brethren. So we need to understand that. Turn back to uh, verses 16 and 17 now. Uh, it says here, When evening had come, they brought to Him many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all, not some, all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. We're right here in chapter 8, Matthew 8, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, Jesus here did this, and Matthew is inspired to say, to put in the Scripture, that he did this fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. So this is a direct fulfillment. Let's turn back to that prophecy then that Matthew refers us to back in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, talking about God's servant who was to come, the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He'll be exalted, extolled very high, as many as were astonished at you. So his visage was marred, his face was marred, more than any man. He was beaten horribly to where he looked like a piece of raw hamburger when they got through with him. So his form was more than the sons of men. And he shall sprinkle many nations, no doubt with his blood. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see. That's obviously when he comes again, they'll finally wake up and what they had not heard they'll consider. Then remember, brethren, the scroll of Isaiah was not divided into chapters. Men came along centuries later, and they had chapter this and chapter that. They just had a long scroll. So the story goes right on. Chapter 53. Who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, this man who is to be beaten so terribly. 
and as a root out of a dry ground, a very weak, dry ground, Israel was at that time. They were not a fruitful nation. The Pharisees and Sadducees were strict and self-righteous and very weak spiritually. It was a dry ground spiritually. He has no form nor comeliness. Christ was not handsome. They never looked at Jesus and said, what a big, strong, handsome man. He wasn't ugly. He apparently was just very, very normal, so normal, looked so much like the other Jews that even though he was in and out of the temple all the time, to be sure which one, they had to have Judas come and kiss him to show which one he was. You see, kiss him on the cheek, as men do, no doubt, in that time. So he was not handsome. There's no beauty. He is despised and rejected by men, which he certainly was. Some people think, boy, if you do like Christ, everyone would believe. No, they wouldn't. They didn't believe him. They killed him instead. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, but you look in the margin printed by the editors right in my Bible, may not be in your Bible, but I have the New King James Version here, and it's printed, it says, literally, sicknesses. So the literal Hebrew word these men print in there, you look in some of your concordances and lexicons, and you'll see this is the word that normally means sicknesses. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, and we yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, was bruised for our iniquities in this terrible beating. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was chastised by that terrible scourging. And I don't have time to give every single verse to have to do with healing or we would have our three-hour service today, which I would be glad to do sometime if you all want to be sure it's okay. I don't think some of you would stay. So we, I can do it, though, believe me. Some of the old folks know you've heard me. But anyway, uh, we could cover this subject completely, but we won't try to cover it all. But there are other scriptures that deal with this, as you know, where when I could go through the last parts of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and where Jesus was scourged. They took uh, whips and beat on him, and uh, his body was literally torn apart. So it says, by his stripes we are healed. And in 2 Peter 2.24, 2 Peter 2.24, it refers directly to this. It quotes it and yet it paraphrases. It says, we were healed because by that time Jesus had paid the penalty by the time Peter wrote. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned aside everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, he's laid on him the iniquity of our spiritual sins, and that's the most important thing. But part of the suffering that he went through, especially that scourging, had primarily to do, perhaps altogether to do, with our physical mistakes. I got this cold myself after the feast, not because I've been such a wonderful example of health and, and uh, everything and practices. I sometimes do this, not always. Last year I did not get it. I was very, very careful. But this year, as I used to do, I used to get a cold most of the time after the feast. And this year I was okay. I went back early to the Ozarks and I was running and walking and doing some push-ups and exercising every day, even the beginning part of the feast. But somehow, then the final Thursday that I was there during the feast, that Thursday, I had to preach that morning and then drive with a wet shirt and still, you know, kind of uncomfortable and sticky, drive into the St. Louis airport for the flight early the next day. 
and then fly on down to Atlanta and then on to Tampa, Florida, and then drive on over to the V-side of Clearwater. So no exercise Thursday, preaching, then a quick lunch, then drive to St. Louis, and no exercise at all. Then Friday, I was flying most of the day, no exercise at all, met by my son, Mike, and then we had dinner with him and his family that night, no exercise. Then Sabbath morning, I preached. Oh, then I'm too tired, it's a Sabbath, no exercise, three days in a row. So it went <laughs> through the face, <laughs> and then I kept eating as usual, which I should not have done, you know. So right after the feast, I got my cold. Now, God lets that happen to all of us, brethren. I should have known to take a little time to exercise. I especially should cut back on my diet and got a little extra sleep less, rather than less sleep. But we're human. We think it's the feast. It's the feast. We don't think it's the feast, so therefore we will break the physical laws of health. We just say, well, it's a feast. It's all going to work out. Yes, it does work out. Sometimes it actually works right out of our nose the next day. <laughs> I know many, many times like this feast just so you don't think God forsakes us. God has kept me going when I knew I was doing wrong in a way and things were, but he would just keep me going really good for all my sermons. And that's the way it was this year. So he's using me to help the brethren. And then lest I get the big head or take his physical laws for granted, he has his hand on me right after the feast, you see, he lets me go. (laughs) He lets me know I'm human and I get cold. So God does do that. God does not take away every cold and every cut and every problem we have. That doesn't mean God has forsaken us at all. It's just a lesson we need to learn. I'll cover more of that part of it perhaps later as we have time. But nevertheless, Jesus paid the penalty. And when we have some really serious sickness, it doesn't have to be terribly serious. God can heal a cold, obviously. He can heal anything and has. But if it's reasonably serious or very serious, we'd better be sure that we put God first and go to God and don't mess around about it at all. Because Christ died for us spiritually and his body was beaten for us to pay the penalty of our physical carelessness and our physical sin, if you want to use that term, breaking God's physical laws. And he paid that penalty and so we can be healed. Turning back to Matthew again, if you would, Turn back to Matthew, brethren, and I'm going to pick up here now in, in chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, and beginning in verse 1, So he got into a boat, crossed over, came to the, his own city, and behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So here's a man totally paralyzed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, how they were so zealous and brought this man, other accounts show how they let him right down and remove the tiles of the roof, remember, really showed a tremendous a lot of zeal and faith. He said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Oh, here come the Pharisees again. And at once some of the scribes said among themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts, for which is eager to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or arise and walk? Now, brethren, think carefully in this passage. Notice that spiritual forgiveness and physical forgiveness of physical mistakes, sins, whatever you want to call them, are tied intricately together. They're two sides of the same coin. Jesus was beaten and scourged with whips, and then his body was pierced with a sword, and I've shown you it wasn't after he was dead, before he was dead, 
blood came out. He screamed, and then he suddenly died. Not of a broken heart, but because this blood was gushing out. He gave his blood for us and died on the cross. But he'd also had shed amount of blood and terrible suffering and that beating to pay the penalty of our physical sins and suffering. So we have to understand these are two sides of the same coin. They're together. Spiritual sin is forgiven. Physical mistakes and weakness and sin are forgiven. So that you, but so that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, go to your house. And he did. He ties the two right together. You see, he says, if I can do this, you ought to know that I can do this. Because there are two sides to the same coin. Physical healing and spiritual healing when you understand it. And it's all part of the gospel, the good news that God will forgive our sins and God will heal our bodies. Because he is our God and he is the healer. So let's begin to understand that maybe more than we have. But what about doctors, people say? Well, again, we used to go too far to the other extreme in years past. And I'm going to apologize. I don't think I need to say every few minutes that I love, deeply love and respect and honor Mr. Herbert Armstrong. I've looked on him ever since I was 20 or 21 years old as a second father. And he taught me more about so many things than any other human beings. I deeply respect him. But he went too far. And in his later life, he himself showed that by his, by his own actions. And by a number of things he said that perhaps we'd gone too far in, in uh, just condemning doctors and everything to do with doctors. But some of the brethren say, I heard him say this or I read. Yeah, you've heard him say a lot of things. I know the one evangelist, one of the older evangelists uh, is dead now, but wasn't Ted Armstrong, by the way. But one evangelist used to come in from the field to our uh, January ministerial conferences and every now and then later, he'd say, well, I, I have my notes from the conference in 1956 or 1959 or 65 or whatever. And this is what Mr. Armstrong said, fellas. This is what he taught. And I talked to him several times because I was his boss for a number of years. And I said, well, George, his name was not George. <laughs> okay. I said, George, I said, you came in for this one 10-day, two-week period and you heard that. But Mr. Armstrong was not a lawyer he didn't think like a lawyer. He was at evolving, learning more, adding, modifying as he went along. And all through the year, he was adding, changing, and modifying. And the Council of Elders meetings, or the, what do you call them, headquarters evangelist meetings we would have, and all those things that I was part of. And all of us who worked with him knew that. But someone could try to say, he said this in a certain period of time, you know, like makeup. He said this at a certain period of time. Therefore, that's bound in heaven, could never change, blah, blah, blah. They go on and on. They don't know the real Martin, Mr. Armstrong. That's their problem. They don't know him. They didn't understand him. They didn't work with him. He would modify back and forth and give certain basic principles, of course, and stuck to the big picture of God's commandments and Sabbaths and holy days. But he would modify some of those things here and there, as you know. But anyway... Uh, this fellow thought we ought not use doctors virtually at all, but yet Mr. Armstrong later on, when Dick died, he had him go to the doctor and do all kinds of things. As he got older, he was taking several uh, drugs or pills before he died and get, did go to the doctor regularly, as we all know, and so on. And uh, taught, advised many of us to go to the doctor and have various things done over and over the last 15 or 20 years of his life. So what about doctors? Let's not think what Mr. Armstrong said. I know what he said, and what he said is 
it's certainly consonant with what I'm telling you now. Turn to Matthew 9. Now let's begin in verse 10. Matthew 9 and verse 10. Uh, so it was when he sat at the house with the tax collectors, Jesus, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, and Jesus said to them, notice the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Ask any English teacher without prejudice to interpret that sentence. The modifying thought is, you know, this is, this is what he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but he's saying the opposite, those who are sick. The logical fulfillment of that sentence is those who are sick do have need of a physician. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say never go to a doctor, it's all bad and so on. So it is not wrong to go to a doctor. And I want you, and this will go out around the world, and if it's basic and I don't make too many mistakes, we'll send it out as a must play because it's so basic. Hope I don't make too many mistakes. But at any rate, it'll go out to most of the brethren I do want everyone to understand this. This is what Jesus Christ taught. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, implying, do have need of a physician. That's the very clear meaning of it. It doesn't mean they ought to always go to a worldly physician. They ought to forsake God. But normally, he's talking in normal human terms here now. Get it straight. They normally would have need of at least in their, this world, and so on. But he said, go and learn what this means. Verse 13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's saying, I can eat with these uh, tax collectors and sinners. I'm here to call sinners, not the ones that are already perfect or think they are. And so we all need spiritual healing. And he was with those who needed spiritual healing the tax collectors and so on. And also he would heal those who had physical healing, but it's not wrong for a person to go to a doctor. And we should not judge each other. That is not our calling to sit around and judge each other. Each person, each family has to decide how far to go in some of these areas, just like all the other areas. Some of you in here and in around the world may be weak in your child rearing. You may never spank them. You may think, well, it's just wrong and we can't touch a child. Yes, God says you should. He tells you that you should chastise your son. If you don't, you hate your son. It says it very clearly in the book of Proverbs. And yet some will beat them, almost hurt them and injure them. And some won't do a thing and think they're doing better. And either extreme is wrong. Again, you have to figure out how to do it, when and how long and all that in your own family. In the fear of God, though, in the fear of God, and let God's Word guide you and let the church guide you to get that right balance the best you can. And that's important. All kinds of other things, of course. Again, the church teaches and God teaches the husband is the head of the family. And God says the wife is to submit herself to her husband as unto the eternal. But does that mean a wife needs to submit herself to a drunken slob who beats up on her and breaks her jaw and practically kills her every now and then, and she's all swollen, should she stay with him? He tells you elsewhere, if your husband is not pleased to dwell with you, you can leave him. Well, even though he stays with you, but he wants to use you as a punching bag, 
you women and you women out there in TV land, (laughs) he's not pleased to dwell with you as a normal human being. He wants to dwell with you as a punching bag, not as a wife. So if he does that and won't repent, certainly you could bring it to the ministry and talk to them. If he won't repent, really repent means change, then you should probably leave him or he may kill you someday. He may get clear out of hand with that kind of treatment, you see. So you've got to let the church guide you in some of those things. Some women are so afraid that they will let those things go on for years and not understand what they need to do on occasion, which we need to do about many such things. All right, those that are sick need a physician. So with wisdom and faith, we need to get the right balance. And when do we go to a doctor and how? And I will throw this in. It's not my notes, but (laughs) it's very important. Please, brethren, I'm not trying to push people to go to doctors, but there are times you may need to, and certainly especially if your child has a broken arm and you better set the bone or he's bleeding to death, that's something that's absolutely clear. You know, you bind up the wound, Jesus showed, like the Good Samaritan, the doctor can do that better than you can unless it's a small cut, and you'd better always go to doctors and things like that. But even with serious sickness or disease, it's not wrong to go to a chiropractor especially if you had just a back problem or whatever, or naturopath. But if you have something very serious, you'd better go to the very best kind of doctor and the best trained doctor available. I've noticed a lot of God's people, they will keep going to some chiropractor when they have something wrong, terribly wrong, and maybe the chiropractor is not trained to deal with that at all. He's not the one to see if you have cancer or if you have some other thing. You'd better find out who does know about that and go to that individual. Use your mind. If you're going to go, go to the best one. Another thing, when I had my detached retina back in 1970, got a handball right in the eye, and uh, it was hit by Mr. Dr. Zimmerman or Howard Clark. He can't remember which one. It doesn't make any difference. My fault. I kind of stepped in the way. Bang! And I began to see this black sheep just run come right across and it kept going and finally I went and found out it was a detached retina and a college doctor Dr. Virgil Roddy said I think it's a detached retina that's the most common handball injury I said really I didn't know that (laughs) I found out it was later I wasn't watching for that but anyway uh, I was going to go he took me down to the local uh, ophthalmologist in Pasadena to be sure he was just a general practitioner and didn't have all that kind of equipment and sure enough, this fellow uh, said, yes, it's definitely, uh, you know, detached retina and I can operate and we better set a time or something. But, well, Dr. Riley was my friend. I was working with him a lot as kind of a liaison with the medical doctors at the college there. And he said, well, we'll, we'll wait. <laughs> and he talked to me later. He said, look, he said, this man's pretty old. I'm not against old people. I am one. But he he says, pretty old and his hands are kind of fatty. And he says, I wouldn't want him working on me. I would want some with more delicate hands and a younger man with better eyes and better control. And he said, I think it's better not to go there. So I began to ask around from two or three people that I knew it well. uh, And, uh, you know, the college nurse, Mrs. Luttrell and and, uh, others. And then my friend Robert Kuhn, I heard about it. And he and one or two others were trying to help me find real quick over just about 24 hours where to go. Turned out my friend Robert Kuhn is got getting, was getting his doctorate in brain research at UCLA. So he got me into the Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA, which was probably the best place west of Chicago in the United States. And we found that the operation was going to cost $700 
where the local doctor was only going to charge about four fifty. So I was going to be at an extra two hundred and fifty dollars. Is your eye worth two hundred and fifty dollars? <laughs> you see, you have to think about that. Now, if it's just something small, but if it's something big, try to get the best. That's all I can say. If you can possibly afford it, try to get the best. You know what I mean? Within your range, get good quality. All you brethren here and around the world, don't go to the worst. Go to the best if you're dealing with your eye or your heart or something. So I did that. And Dr. Jerome Perlman operated and it lasted for years and years and years and years and, uh, and so on, for which I'm very grateful. In fact, I've outlived him. He was younger than me, but he died of cancer and I'm still going and still can see. So I'm grateful for what I did, but I was doubtful at first because I wasn't sure if I should, but Mr. Armstrong thought I should. Then I went back to Mr. Armstrong a second time and I said, are you sure? He says, oh yeah. Then the very morning I was to go in and be operated on, I came by to see Mr. Armstrong because he was like a father. And I said, Mr. Armstrong, I'm one on the way to the hospital. Have you had any second thoughts? Are you sure it's okay? I, oh yeah, Rod. He says, you need to do what you can do with this kind of thing. Oh, okay, so I went ahead, and literally, I've learned that that was the best choice. It was not a disease. It was a membrane that had been broken, like you break your arm, and the doctors had to use very delicate equipment to pull it back, and they didn't, they didn't uh, tie it or suture it. They, they burned it. It was kind of like a hot, coal probe, they cost it, that actually burned the flesh right onto the uh, thing, and you're knocked out, of course, so you don't feel it, and therefore it would hold and still been holding. Anyway, uh, that's what they did, and Mr. Armstrong helped me to have the courage to do that. That was not the first operation we'd had like that at all. There were others. Gerald Waterhouse was operated on for hernia and others during that time. But we had decided back in 1968 as a ministry that repair surgery was not wrong. Later, we began to modify as we went along and realized there are lots of things that are not wrong in that way at all. And Mr. Armstrong realized that himself and had things done to him, as most of you know. But anyway, uh, there are points to consider. I want to give you four key points to consider about healing here and about doctors and so forth. First point is the scripture I've just given you. Those that are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick. It is not wrong to at least find out what you have. I should have said that earlier, too. That's another reason to go to a doctor. You don't have to do everything they say. Unless it's your underage child, they could make that child be operated on or something, as you know. But if it's you, they can't make you. They try. You can punch them in the nose, which I probably would. I'm kind of mean that way. They try to make me get some operation I didn't want. They're not going to hog tie me and put me in there. And you can be the same way. They can't make you do anything. You just get their advice. Secondly, uh, let's turn to Mark uh, 5, verse 25. Mark 5, verse uh, 25. And here uh, we have uh, another aspect of the thing we need to consider. Mark 5, and it says here, A certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years that suffered many things from many physicians. Here's the scripture we used to use all the time. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. All right, you want to consider that part. Jesus said it's not wrong to go to a doctor. 
But also, you've got to be careful because if you go to too many doctors and you find they don't know the answer or you could do it another way, they may take all your money. Today, we have the health plans, you know, and maybe they won't take all your money, but they'll take an awful lot of it. A lot of doctors don't know what they're doing and they're guessing. And if you read my article on that, the booklet, I should say, then I quoted this woman doctor who was just fresh out of medical school. And she said when she first came into medical school, she said the dean of the College of Medicine, whatever his title was, gave the lecture. And she said, he said, unfortunately, uh, fellows and girls, he said, half of what we're going to be teaching you is wrong, but we don't know which half. <laughs> half of what they're learning is wrong. And that's what this dean of the medical school said, according to this doctor, which is quoted in my All right, do you understand? Medicine, that's why they say they practice. They practice medicine. There's practicing on you sometimes, and you need to be sure to use your mind. And you say, boy, if I don't go to a doctor, maybe I would die. Well, that might be. And sometimes you definitely should go to a doctor. Each one has to decide. And I don't have time to go through five hours of explanation here. But I would rather die in the hands of God than die in a hospital with all kinds of tubes stuck in men like this, for instance. Perhaps you would rather die with all the tubes in your nose and mouth and be virtually knocked out and cut off from your family for days or weeks. That would be a respectable way to die. Very respectable. The doctors would get your money and they, 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 they've done uh, what medicine could do. But sometimes medicine is not the answer. God is the answer. So you've got to figure it out. Use wisdom and ask God for guidance. So remember that verse too. Now, uh, then a third area, I'm sorry uh, here if I can get these uh, things straight, a third area that you've got to consider uh, is uh, in Mark 5, which we've already read, Mark 5, and uh, well, anyway, one of these here, I'll just go back, assuming this is the one I'm wanting in Second Chronicles 16. Second Chronicles 16, if you turn back there. Second Chronicles 16, and you need to consider this as well, a very important uh, thing here, and very important principle in God's Word. Beginning in verse 7, so you kind of get the context. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said, Because you've relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the eternal, your God, therefore the army of the saint king of Assyria has escaped out of your hand. He did not trust God and as he should have done in this battle. And so then he says, you're not relied on God. For the eyes of the eternal, verse 9, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. This is what this faithful prophet said. And you've got to understand that yourself. God is testing you. And he's testing me. How much will we put our lives totally in God's hand? We say, God, you keep your nose out of my sex life. If I want to have a little messing around over here, then I'll do that. Some men do. Some men say, God, you keep your nose out of my smoking. If I want to quietly smoke a little on the side, that's my business. Well, it's also God's business who commands you to glorify Him in your body. Some men will hide their tithes from God. And businessmen are noted for this, as one of our leading ministers told me, who dealt with several, who was a successful man. He said, these men are so used to using their accountants 
and putting money back in other parts of the business and working deals here and there so they don't have anything to pay the government taxes on. They hide their money from the government, but they also hide it from God when it's time to tithe. And we find that the poor people, the little old widow and the poor people nearly always give more proportionally as it was in Jesus' day than the rich guy. The rich guy is so used to putting money first in his life that he does that even when God is involved. That's interesting, but it's true. So God is watching us. His eyes go to and fro to see who's strong and whose heart is loyal to him. And this you've done foolishly, he told uh, this king. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Then Asa, this was the king, was angry with the seer, this prophet, put him in prison, enraged. And then Asa pressed some of the people. And then it says, in the 39th year of his reign, verse 42, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was very severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the ever-living one. You see, it isn't that he had committed a great sin necessarily just in going to the doctor, but he did not go to God at all. And frankly, another thing, as you know, if you read about it, and even the commentaries sometimes bring this out, back at that time, they had very little knowledge of medical science, and the doctors were usually connected with pagan gods. So that, no doubt, was involved, you know, some servant of a pagan god. So he did not seek the eternal, but the physicians. So what was the answer? Did God bless him? No. So Asa rested with his fathers, and he died And God let him go to sleep because he did not bring God into the picture. So that's another very important thing. You must not leave God out. It's not wrong to go to a doctor to find out what you have and on occasion do what the doctor says. Second, you'd better realize that the doctors can make horrible mistakes and half of what they're taught, some doctors say, is wrong and they will admit that. Then you've got to have faith You must have faith in God. And finally, you must not leave God out. Don't leave God out. Some just go to God and never get anointed. Always bring God into every phase of your life. Your married life, your child-rearing life, your tithing life, your business success life, how you conduct your business and ask God to guide you and be with you. Every phase of your life is to be open to God because it is anyway... It is anyway. He knows about it. Why try to hide your life from God? You should be giving your life to God. Say, God, I want you to fashion and mold me in every phase of my life so I can truly honor you and hold back nothing from you. This should be your attitude and all these things. So that's a very, very important uh, principle. And uh, now going back to the New Testament now, if you would, back to the book of Mark. And get back there. Let's turn back to Mark. And uh, Mark 5. And uh, go on then. Here this woman suffered many things. But then a little bit later, uh, verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind and touched his garment and said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. She just felt that this was a great servant of God. If she could just touch his garment, she'd be made well. And immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body she was healed. Jesus sensed somehow, because he was God, that power had gone out, this supernatural power to heal this woman. 
And he turned around and said, who touched me? And you know, some of the other accounts in Matthew, I think, says well, the disciples made fun of him. What do you mean who touched you? You're in a crowd. Everybody's bumping into you. But he knew it was something special. And he looked around and the woman, verse 33, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened, came and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, verse 34, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Yes, you've got to have faith, brethren. You've got to have faith. That's so important. And I'm going to tell you, Satan the devil has done a powerful job on the faith of God's people. Satan the devil has done a powerful job on the faith of most of you in this room. Don't kid yourself. You older brethren may remember that way back when, in the 50s and 60s, if some of you were there, we had lots more healings. And there was more of an attitude of faith. And that faith has gone down and down and down because we have all these ads on TV saying take a pill for this and another pill for that because Mr. Armstrong got old and got disengaged and finally died and then the liberals came in and took over and watered the whole thing down and most of you younger ones have grown up in that time and you never knew that attitude of faith. You never saw all these healings and it's hard for you to have the kind of faith you need to have and God help you to get it and to build it. You're going to need it, brethren, before this age is over. You really are. And if there's any way I can help build that faith in God's church, I think God's going to hold me responsible to try to do that. So let's try to understand, even in this age, we must have more faith. That's so important. Did you know, brethren, that even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could not heal on certain occasions? Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6 now. Let's go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And let's begin in verse 1. It says here, Then he went out to his own country, and when the Sabbath was come, he was teaching in the synagogues, and they were kind of uh, bugging, bugged by him. He said, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Who's he? They were offended. But Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Normally the people in your own house know all your faults, and so they can't have the deep respect and faith, you know, that outsiders might have. Now he could, the Son of God, could do no mighty work there. Jesus, the very Son of the living God, could do no mighty work. Wow! What's wrong? He couldn't, except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And the reason was, of course, he marveled because of their unbelief. And as it says in Matthew thirteen, fifty-eight, it says he could not do any mighty work because of their unbelief. Not his unbelief, but their unbelief. They did not have living faith. So here's the very Son of God. You see, God blesses if we have an atmosphere of faith. Then He does a lot more. If there are a lot of smirkers and scorners around who don't believe, He does not act near as much, brethren. And so we have to really grasp that fact and understand that fact. Again, healing is so important a part of the gospel. Notice now in Mark 6, let's turn to verse 7. He called the twelve... To him, the twelve apostles, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits to cast out demons here, commanded to take nothing and trust in God. 
And so then, verse 13, verse 12, I'm sorry, they went out and preached that men should repent. That's the first thing. Repent and believe the gospel. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil. Now, brethren, again, most of you know, but some of you here are new. Did you know that virtually all our ministers, sometimes I forget on a rare occasion, maybe some other minister will, but normally I carry a little vial of oil. I used to carry it loose in my pocket and it would fall out, but now I put it in my hearing aid case and it tends to stay in a little uh, tiny bottle of olive oil because olive oil is a symbol of God's Holy Spirit. And we put that oil on your forehead. If you have an ailment on your uh, uh, bottom, we don't put it on your bottom. Don't worry. (laughs) We put it on your forehead and we pray that God will heal whatever it is. You see, it's a symbol of God's Holy Spirit because God puts the oil, uh, puts his spirit there. And the oil is a symbol of that spirit. You, you old ladies will forgive my terrible crude jokes here. Anyway, I'm an evil man. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, I do want people to understand, though. Some people don't know that. So uh, we do that. And so they anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, who were these men? They were the 12 apostles. So it wasn't just Jesus, but he told them, go out and preach and cast out demons and heal the sick. It was all part of the gospel, all part of showing God's forgiveness for for spiritual sin, God's forgiveness for physical sin. You understand? All lumped together. That's what they did. They did that. That was part and parcel of apostolic Christianity. Now you turn to Luke chapter 10, if you would, this time the gospel of Luke chapter 10, and notice here something even further. Some people say, well, these things were just for Jesus and the 12 apostles. Nobody else did this. Oh, yes, they did. Luke chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others. Verse 1. 70 more. First you had Jesus. Then you had the 12 apostles. That's 13. And now you've got 70 more. That's 83. And then later, and I don't have time to read, but you'll read that both Philip and Stephen anointed people and healed them in the book of Acts. And they weren't even apostles. And and, and they were ordained as deacons. And that's 85. We know of at least 85 people. Well, Paul and Barnabas did too. That's 87. So you get up to 87, and there probably were many others, local elders all through the church, that were healing people, not just the 12 apostles. And so I want all of us to understand this. This is part of the work of the ministry. This is part of preaching the gospel. He sent them out, and he said... And verse 8, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick. Wow. First thing, heal the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So these three things are always lumped together. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. You say, well, did they cast out demons? It didn't say that in the early verses, but notice verse 17. And then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Wow. Yes, they did. Three things. Part of the apostolic ministry, not just the ministry of the apostles, but the true ministry carried out by these other 70 and later after Pentecost by Stephen, Philip, and others. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. All part of the true ministry. 
So let's understand that. That's a very important concept. We need to profoundly understand that and have faith in it. I remember years ago when I was in ambassador, teaching in ambassador college. Again, please don't be bored. I don't have 50 of these examples. I wish I'd kept them all in mind. But a young man, a married student, missed class that day, was up in the new uh, Loma D. Armstrong Academic Center. I can remember right where it was, where we had the class. And he came in at the end of the class. And I thought, well, what's wrong? Why was he missing or something? And maybe I gave him the evil eye. I don't know. <laughs> he's going, what's, what's wrong? And he said, Mr. Meredith, he said, I couldn't be here today. He said, my little daughter's about to die. I said, really? And he was a very nice young man. And he said, she has spinal meningitis and has been diagnosed. It was not some guess. It was by a medical doctor, Dr. McReynolds, who in fact was an Adventist doctor who worked at the college and had taken her blood and maybe urine stuff to the clinic, to the to whatever, to the laboratory and had it analyzed. She had the fatal variety of spinal meningitis. She was a beautiful little girl, three or four years old. She was not that much younger than my daughter Elizabeth and maybe get sentimental. And here she was, was going like this and going like that, having these convulsions and terribly high fever and dying. And he told me about it. And said, would you come and anoint her? Well, I had some appointments, but I got on the phone right there in the lobby and called up and asked uh, whoever was my secretary to cancel my appointments. And I went out to his house right away. And I prayed very, very fervently because all these king things came over me. This, this, this innocent little child convulsing and dying and beseeched God to heal her. And I did put my heart in my prayer more than normal because of the circumstances. And I left and she went to sleep. And I wasn't sure. I said, God, please do heed her. Don't let this go on and on. She'll just die. And I prayed more through the day. And then the next day, either her mother or father called. I can't. I think it was her mother and said, you know, my daughter was healed through your prayer. She went to sleep, which she hadn't been sleeping very well before, and slept for hours. And when she woke up, the fever was gone. She wanted something to eat. And then she got down on the floor and started playing. And she said, she's perfectly normal. And the next day, I saw her father in class again and he said we're bringing her to church I said, well one you'd better be no she said she's doing everything i thought well i can't live with god she was healed supernaturally had no recurrence of it was very grateful for that through my prayers i'm sure mr ames could tell you things about his prayers and mr crockett and others but those things do happen through the prayers of god's ministers so brethren we've got to focus more on healing in this age because we are going to have horrible disease epidemics. You remember how Jesus Christ described that in Matthew chapter 24 and uh, those things, as Mr. Ames said in the announcements, well, actually quoting Dr. Winnale's letter, those things are speeding up. And he said uh, in Matthew 24, 7, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Luke calls it great earthquakes. Pestilence means disease epidemics. And we've explained that many times. There are going to be horrible disease epidemics if this avian flu gets going. And I'm not trying to scare you with that. That may not happen at all. But if it does, and there are literally millions dying around the world, it's going to get the attention of people more than normal. And maybe even God's people begin to wake up and realize they may not always have enough flu shots 
And as some of the doctors have said, they're not sure the kind of shot they have is going to work on this kind of flu in the first place. May not do any good at all. Then what do you do? These things are coming. And your only final hope is God in heaven. We're not trying to get you to look to us. We can't do anything. I'm very weak. I have hundreds of mistakes. But there is a God in heaven who has no mistakes. And that God is the healer. And that God will heal you and heal your family. If you learn to get off of it and get zealous and put your heart in your prayers and seek God with all of your being in a way many of us have not been doing before. When Mr. Armstrong's daughter Beverly had a great big cyst, I think she called it, in her ovary and she was pregnant and going to have one of her children, she was crying and she came to her dad. She's the one that was baptized and later, I think, fell away. But she was, I guess, sincere at that time. I knew her very well and both the daughters and the whole family. We were so small. And she was really scared because she either had to have the doctor cut it out and she didn't want to do that. She'd always grown up trusting God and the doctor said it might not work. He wasn't sure. The medicine wasn't as far advanced back then. It might kill her or the baby. And on the other hand, if the baby, the baby couldn't be born with this great big cyst that she had. What was she going to do? And Mr. Armstrong has told this story, and I'm sure Mr. Parting remembers hearing it, and I may not tell it exactly right, but in essence, he said, Beverly, if you're going to be healed by God, you'd better seek God a lot more than you've ever done in your life. And you'd better devote not less than one full hour in Bible study every day, every day, and one full hour in prayer on your knees every day every day, and beseech God to help you learn everything you need to learn, help you do everything you should do, and then ask Him to heal. And she did, I guess. I don't know if she did it perfectly. Most of us don't do anything perfectly. Remember the man who came crying, and Jesus told him he had to have faith. He said, Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. You know, yet he had mercy on him. We don't have the complete faith, but God has mercy. He's the father of mercies. So he blessed that man and healed him or his child, whatever it was in the Gospels. And he healed Beverly. And this thing just went. She had no operation. It just disappeared. So God does do those things. But brethren, many of you probably need to spend about one hour a day in Bible study, one hour a day in prayer. That might be the best treatment you could possibly have. Am I commanding you to do that? No. I'm just saying a lot of us ought to get a lot closer to God and we'd better get away from this world and all the stuff around this world and begin to seek the God of the Bible as these things intervene in human affairs as God does and these things begin to happen and the end of this whole age comes, we realize that all this stuff we get involved in is not near as important as we thought it was. And getting close to the God of creation is much more important and I don't care how strong you are, young you are, you can come down with anything at any time. My friend Richard David Armstrong was smashed by a car. He was not even driving and died. An old man, age 29, 29, gone. A lot of people have had things to happen to them. And God permits it in some cases. So we do need to understand and, and really cry out to God and ask for God's help and God's mercy, brethren, much more than many of us have done. And I hope that all of you will learn to do that. You say, well, God, let some people die. I know that. I, I, and humanly, I hate that. I don't like that. It hurts me deeply. 
And yet you read back in 2 Kings, I won't take time to turn here, but 2 Kings 13, verse 14, it describes how Elisha, one of the greatest prophets of human history, came down with the sickness whereof he died. Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, the one who followed through from Elijah's ministry. He died of the sickness that he came down with. Why? Later on, so they didn't give up and say, well, he wasn't a true prophet. Remember, this guy's bones were uh, were let down and touched Elisha's bones when this man was buried and the other man was resurrected. Boy, he showed the power there, but he didn't resurrect Elisha. Why? We don't understand why he let some people die and some not. Always. But he shows the power. Before Dick Armstrong died, Dick Armstrong had three marvelous healings. And I won't tell you all of them in detail. I know them. But the most impressive was Howard Clark, a young man exactly my age who'd been in the Korean War and was a, a, a quadriplegic, as I remember. I guess you'd call it quadriplegic, wouldn't you, Mr. Partin? I think he was a crippled hands and feet and everything and just sat in this wheelchair and in the Shakespeare Club where we used to have services at headquarters, he was always sitting right down there. They'd bring him in the door and wheel his wheelchair back there and the Navy paid for him going to get all kinds of hospitals and all kinds of operations and everything because he had shrapnel wounds in the war. Did he go to a doctor? Yeah, he went to dozens of doctors (laughs) and the government let him do it and they tried to get him well every way they could and they couldn't. He just sat there, and frankly, one of his nurses married him, which was unusual. I guess in a Navy hospital, he was so uh, positive and so friendly that she loved his personality, and she married him. And they used to wheel him in, and then the Leakins would help wheel him out, help lift him up in this big extended kind of a Chrysler station wagon type contraption they fixed specially so he could, he could get it and use it in his wheelchair. But there he sat. Year after year, there's Howard Clark, there's Howard Clark. And I knew him, I talked to him, he invited me over to the house. Finally, I baptized him. And I had one of the other ministers help me because he was about my height, but he was about 60 pounds heavier. He got quite heavy and just terribly hard to lift over into the little baptismal pool we had in the lower garden. So we kind of eased him over and put him under the water. And the other guy helped me lift him up and get him back out. Maybe two other guys, I remember one. And we got him back in the wheelchair And he grew, but he was still crippled. Then months later, I was gone to Chicago for Pentecost, as we used to do. And I I wasn't over the ministry yet, but I was always taking trips out. And I came back, and the young man who met me at the airport said, You know, Howard Clark was healed? Well, we were a real small church, so that was, you know, we knew everybody. You say, did you know Howard Clark? You better believe I knew him. I baptized him. I taught him. I, I worked with him a lot. I liked him. And I thought, he was healed? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Dick prayed for him. They said, Dick Armstrong prayed for Howard on Pentecost, and he was completely healed, and he began to get up and walk around after all those years. Well, the next day, I came into work, and here was Howard out in the rounded uh, driveway in front of the library building. You older brethren remember that, of course. And here is Howard sitting on the fender of this car, kind of perched, and he had this normal, a little bit more of a, a smile and a twinkle in his eye. And I came up and said, Howard, I hear that you're healed. And uh, he said, yeah, I was healed. I said, you can just walk all over. And he kind of twinkled. He said, you ought to see me, don't you? And I said, you better believe I do. <laughs> so he got down and he kind of limped around, you know, Because he could walk real well, it took several weeks for all the muscles to get going again. 
This was right after Pentecost, so I guess it was late May or June. That autumn, not that autumn, that late summer, the very day that my son, Michael Ray Meredith, was born, I went to another Clark's wedding. I performed at Bryce Clark. And after the wedding, I had not yet signed the papers for the wedding, and we were waiting around, and and people were visiting, and he was going through the line, the receiving line, and I was just talking to different ones, and it, it brought tears to my eyes. And I didn't used to have many tears back then. I was thought to be a tough guy, but my dad, but I couldn't help it. I started crying. Here was Howard Clark having one of his children in each arms, bouncing and laughing and carrying along, carrying a child in each arm. The fellow who couldn't even get out of the wheelchair, August 13th, 1958. And then my wife kept wanting to go. I hadn't signed the uh, papers yet. She said, Rod, I think I'm going into labor. I said, oh, well, don't worry. It'll be take plenty of time. And she says, no, I think we so finally she prevailed on me to rush home to have the baby. And uh, she was going to have the baby, by the way, not me. And, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, Michael was born and Dr. Ralph Merrill delivered my son. But so I always remember August the 13th, 1958. One of the most wonderful miracles we've seen. Many, many other miracles like that in our age, my brethren. God is the healer, the healing God. And He will heal if we put our faith and trust in Him. We've got to really understand that. So remember, back in Mark, if you would, turn, closing. I'll I'll, I'll skip a couple of scriptures, but I want to go to Mark here. Chapter 16, Mark 16, if you would. beginning in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven. He'd been resurrected from the dead. And as they sat at the table, notice, He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Just like I've done you a little bit. He said, what's wrong with you men? I've been three years with you and you still won't believe. He didn't just exhort them. He rebuked them. They would not believe. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. But many of you have the Holy Spirit, but we still don't believe the way we ought to believe. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's part of our job. And he who believes, not just sort of hopes, but believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be judged. The Greek word is better translated judged. And these signs will, didn't say they might, they will follow those who believe. It didn't say the apostles. Notice the wording. Those who believe. So they have. They have not always done it every year. They have not always done it every time and every way we want. But in general, they have followed. I have seen demons cast out. I have participated in casting out demons myself. A number of times. I've seen Mr. Armstrong do it. I know about it. But it's not as often as we would like. And we don't even seem to see as many demons. That's another story for another time. But that will be part of it. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. Not hooping and hollering like the so-called Pentecostal. That's frankly chaotic and confused. God is not the author of confusion. But speaking in different languages. Learning, not learning, but just speaking supernaturally in Chinese or or whatever. And they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, 
implying accidentally, just like Paul picked up this serpent accidentally, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And time after time, I've asked the brethren, which I did earlier with you, and you've raised your hands. And every time I've done it down through the years, vast numbers of the people, most of the older members raise their hands. They have seen healings in their family. They've experienced healings. They know that. We have had that. Brethren, we have had hundreds and hundreds of healings in this era of the church. I don't mean dozens. I mean hundreds, maybe thousands would be more accurate. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He's sitting there waiting to return again. He's our living head and our high priest. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord, yes, God too, but God working through Christ, the living head of the church. Christ, the Lord, working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. That's something I wish we had a lot more of. And you know, and you know that you know, that if we pray to God as a church, if we get closer to God, God will give us more money. We will get on more stations. He will and already is beginning to intervene in human affairs more powerfully and shake the nations. Then if he shows this kind of power that the sick are healed, the demons are cast out, and things like that, the world is not going to fall down at our feet all of a sudden. It'll take months or years. But gradually men who are seeking will begin to realize somewhere on this earth is the true church of God, and they have the power of God, and they'll know that there is a real God, and that God has true servants on the earth, and they will listen. God grant that those people be us 